Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the marvelous Michelle Shepardson, the superb Stu Skeel, and the bodacious Ben Madden. John Madden football. <laughs> Let's go. I'm not sure if that's the same Madden. Probably not. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with Chris, and we're going to talk about running published adventures. The good, the bad, the tips, the tricks to make it work for you and your group. Before we dive into that main topic, though, I'm going to ask our Get to Know Gnome question, which is, what was your first original plot that you can remember running for a group? Man, that word original is so loaded. Yeah, yeah, I know. So the first original to us, right? Like, it could be cribbed because every idea is cribbed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like I was telling Jared on a recent episode of Thacko with Advantage that I totally stole plot points from Stardust for at least two different adventures I've run for people. I remember because I edited it. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> anyway, tell me what your first original plot you can remember running for. Sure, I will. But first, everybody should listen to Thaka with Advantage. It's a great show, if you, especially if you like <laughs> D&D. My first original, with uh, with quotation marks, uh, plot that I remember is uh, my second campaign that I ever ran after the first one went down in a fiery blaze of glory when I was 12 years old. And then my second, <laughs> my second one, which I was still 12 years old, I threw all the characters halfway across the world and they had to get back home. That's it. That was the first, that was my first original <laughs> plot <laughs> because I don't count the very first one that crashed and, and burned. Cause it was like one yeah. session that didn't go anywhere. That game actually went like, you know, 15 sessions. <laughs> and I mean, the first one you were 12, it was one session that you can't count that. Yeah. But the second one I was 12 and it went 15. Cause you learned from the first one. I did. So mine was, see, I didn't start GMing until I was an adult. I'd been gaming for about 15 years before I GMed for the first time. And I vaguely remember running a one-shot D&D game where I spent far more time putting together the characters than actually planning what we were going to do with those characters. And I know that the, the general gist of everything was that they started in jail and then were brought before the king and told, if you want your freedom, you need to go do this thing. I don't remember what the specifics of that thing were. I just remember it was, I'm forcing you to all work together. I'm forcing you to go do this thing. Now go on this dungeon crawl. Can, can I ask you a question? Sure. What did you learn from that experience? Uh, that I need to plan more when I'm running D&D. I mean, I was also really, really new. I did much better when I started a campaign of mutants and masterminds. I mean, I would have thought the lesson learned there would be you can't force players to do anything and have them be happy about it. Um, I disagree with that slightly. There are certain parameters you can set in front of them and say, this is what the game is. If you don't engage with what the game is, go find something else to play. Sure. That's session zero, right? Session. I mean, there, there was no session zero. This was just a one shot, but it was still like. Here's the start of the game. Go. And like I have probably over like I've been jamming now for 15 years ish. Yeah, 15 years. Um, so I have learned how to present that uh, the characters are meant to work together type of thing, because I don't do PvP. I don't do games where I there's supposed to be interparty conflict. I don't like that. I don't enjoy that. So, I, you know, that was probably my first experience trying to wrap my head around that because I was a, an experienced enough gamer to know that I didn't like it, but not an experienced enough GM to know how to do it elegantly, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I got you. That makes sense. 
let's move into our main topic. Uh, at the beginning of October, I got to attend UConn, which is an awesome little gaming convention up in Michigan. This was my first time signing up to run stuff for an in-person con in quite some time. Thank you to a certain unpleasant pandemic that has been bothering us all for the last few years. Now, I wanted to push myself a bit, so I threw a session of Free League's Vason on the schedule. It's an awesome game that I've had for a while since it you know, initially fulfilled the Kickstarter, but I hadn't really brought it to the table yet. So to make myself easier, I just ended up using one of the published adventures from the Mythic Ireland and Britain book. The game went great, both in my playtest and the actual session of the con, but this got me thinking about running published adventures and the things you kind of need to keep in mind. So I have thoughts, and I know Chris does too, so we thought we'd get together on the mics and talk about this. The good, the bad, what you can do to make it actually work for you. Cool. So uh, so can I can I start with a super nerdy misdirected mark thing? Sure. We, we should try in some way, shape and or form to define what a published adventure is. Oh, definition panda. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the definition panda, so I won't I, we won't drop that bumper here because I might get, you know, sued or killed or shot or assassinated by a panda assassins because that's, that's almost happened a couple of times. I, you know, over the last decade or so. Yeah, I, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't have to agree on this definition. We can come to it kind of figure it out together but my my first initial is what are published adventures and they're a collection of encounters that are packaged together in a way that creates a coherent narrative and that is my perceived intent of a published adventure i would agree with that um i think there are certain reasons that publishers provide pre-made adventures for their games uh but the general gist of what you're saying is definitely absolutely correct uh yeah i, I agree 100 like an intro adventure to a Published adventure to a game system is completely different from something that's been written like five years after the game system has come out. Yeah. Those have different sub intents aside from the intent of being a coherent narrative. Let's talk about what the good is of having a published adventure in front of you. Sure. Leading into what we were just talking about, it often gives you the right tone for the game. The tone the publishers and creators of that game intended right there in front of you Here's an adventure that we think works in this game. Supposedly. Supposedly. That, that's the intent. That's the intent. We'll say that's the intent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do educations because educations get get weird and makes it hard to talk about this stuff. Oh, yeah. And there, there's there's always exceptions to any rule. Uh, what else is a good thing? Uh, the themes and needed info are generally laid out for the GM. The quality of that layout can vary. Um, but generally speaking, they are providing you with everything you need to run that narrative. I agree. It's a great way to figure out how a game works, um, what they're they're intended for. And finally, I'd say the other important thing is they're super helpful for GMs who are short on time. I agree to a point with that. So once I am com comfortable with a game system, I think it takes me longer to prep a game with a published adventure than it does to just whip one out on my own. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. Yeah, so I think it's great for for starting out um, game masters that are short on time that need to come up with something because they could just drop it on the table, especially if it's easy to to parse and then just run it from there. That's the, the D&D Adventures League has lived off of that formula for years. <laughs> Before we get into more of the good, I, I think I want to talk a little bit about what a published adventure actually gives you as far as like a game master because we we prep and we put all these notes down and we need, we need things to create narrative especially coherent narrative and you know I, I mentioned encounters before and I, I mentioned narrative in game mastering and in gaming in general when we come up with adventures for our players to play through I think we need like three things in general big three things we need a situation which is the conflict 
So conflict is a, is a not unknown to people, but the narrative term, like for like literary things and whatnot is conflict. Like you need some sort of conflict. That's usually the situation in a role-playing game. Cause we don't know how that conflict's going to play out. Cause it's what the players are for. We need a setting for these people to be in. That is what an adventure gives us. Now the adventure might be within a larger setting, but the adventure does provide an even more drilled down version of the setting for us. Mm-hmm. And then we need a framework and a framework is the series of encounters and all the ancillary stuff that goes along with that, that in literary terms would be the plot. Like if you're an outliner as a writer or like writing a movie script or whatever like that, like you can figure out what your plot is. Or even if you're like pantsing it or discovery writing it or whatever, you can write through once, then go back and be like, cool, what was my actual plot? And then like refine that. <laughs> now in role-playing games, when we're playing, we can't do that. Like we're, we're, we're not, we're not no. editing our stuff as we're going, but for a published adventure, it's there, right? Like the encounters, like we can go look like, okay, this is kind of the narrative through line of what players potentially should be doing if this adventure is doing what we want it to do or what the players will be doing. Like if it's a hex crawl adventure on the Isle of Dread, like we know they're going to be exploring the the Isle of Dread and random encounters will occur that are part of that in the exploration. And there'll be dinosaurs and like lizard folk and all sorts of things like that, that, that will create that sort of Indiana Jones exploration of a, of a lost land type thing. So that is, to me, the three main things that a, that a published adventure should give us. But, you know, what the published adventure doesn't give us is the main protagonists. Yeah. Man, I think we miss the beat so hard as game masters, especially pundits talking about game mastering advice when it comes to the characters. Because in storytelling, the characters are king, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll I'll be completely honest. This is part of why I've been dragging my feet on putting my Tales from the Loop scenarios into some sort of published format that I can share with people, because these scenarios work really well with the one-shot characters I've got ready to go for those games. And like, a lot of people don't necessarily like getting the characters with the adventure. They, they No, my players want to play their own characters. Totally understand this. But this means the GM is put on the spot to try and make sure that the adventure in this pre-published adventure will actually work with the characters the players are bringing to the table, which sometimes is, is sometimes this can be part of the bad. I don't know that it's bad. I think it's the problem with published adventures in general. Yeah. You can't do that, right? Like as a writer of adventures, I've written, you know, like like 30 or 30 of them that are published, I think. Something like that at this point in my life. I could never really account for the player characters, especially in some of the stuff that I've written for, like in D&D Adventures League. That's where most of my adventure writing is. I can't tell you who the characters are going to be at the table, but my most successful, one of my most successful adventures, not my best selling one, my second best selling one at the very beginning of it, it's, it's a city siege right off the bat. And I put three NPCs in there that I say right off the bat, like a session zero, you are connected to one of these in some way, you know them. Game Master, ask them how they know this person and why they matter so that when the city siege starts, they have a reason to go try and find them and save. So getting into the bad of published adventures, a lot of times I get frustrated with them not giving the, not giving the GM enough tools or things that they can use to improvise when the players don't do what they want. They make assumptions about what the players are going to do that is not always correct. Do you mind if I say why I think that's bad? Why it's a a really tricky situation? Sure. There's a couple of reasons. First is that if you are writing with the idea that the player character is going to do X and you have not written into the adventure 
strong reasons for them to go do X from scene to scene, mm-hmm. like that are like really strong, strong pointers. This is a big fa- failing of linear adventure design when you don't do this. And linear adventure design is not railroading. There's probably some episode on the Gnomecast. I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> if not, there's one on MMP there's, somewhere. There's, there's like two, maybe three at this point. I'm sure we've talked about it like a dozen times. Without that strong reason to go to the next scene in the linear design, then the adventure falls. It fails because you've not given the player characters enough of a reason to do X. Now, if they're being belligerent, that's they're they're being belligerent. I can't do anything about that. But as a as a writer or if you're an adventure writer out there, and you've not given a strong reason to go to that next sequence. Uh, then then you have you've fallen down. Yeah. The other thing is, if you don't give a strong enough hook at the very beginning for the, them to even engage with the adventure, you could talk about players being problematic in, in any number of ways. But there is a thing where in the published adventure, if the hook is not strong enough to compel the players to go do X and you haven't given them a reason to go do X, then the adventure has fallen down and failed. The only way that that adventure is going to happen is your players take pity on you and just take the hook anyway. And not all of your players are going to be that kind to you as a GM. You really need to give them the reasons to be doing the thing. You have to identify all this stuff when you're using a published adventure. And if it's not there, they're the one that has to go in and add it. I ran uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, and I actually really like that adventure. It's got some very cool things in it, but there are some sections where there are assumptions about what the players are going to do. Mind you, this is this is a a game, a camp mini campaign, whatever. It's, it gets them from like first to fifth level. It's a campaign. That's that's a, I mean, it's an arc. It tells an arc, a story arc. Yeah, it's called Dragon Heist. My players knew that when they made their characters. They did not make law-abiding citizens. And there is a section of the book where they're supposed to be investigating a thing that happened, and they do two things with this that drive me absolutely bonkers. One, they put crucial information that can only be obtained by overhearing an NPC talk about it. They don't give you any alternatives for the players to learn this on their own through their own investigative skills or their own character's ability to talk. It's just, oh, they're going to overhear this guy talking about it. And I'm like, that's dumb. Don't do that. Don't give my players options. Yeah. If my players maybe don't find the clues or struggle with engaging with it or just have most abysmal roles, sure, as a fallback, have them overhear this guy talking about it so they can still continue on. The other one was it assumed they would go to the city watch to talk to them about something. And I'm like, why? My Yeah. Why, why would the dragon heist? And I know that's not necessarily meant that the players are going it, either way. My players had no desire to go engage with the watch about anything. So I'm like, I have no idea how to how do I take them from this point to this point when I know they're never going to go here to get the clues that are presented there, which means you as a GM have to kind of like figure out how to shuffle those things around. Yes. And that is a problem when you have a D&D adventure, especially that is relying on the idea of like the core clue structure to like push you from scene to scene. And it doesn't tell you to just give them the core clues in meaningful ways. Or ways that make sense like mm-hmm. that, that. That's a problem with it, with some amount of adventure design. And you have to parse that stuff like that's 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 work. Yeah. Uh, the issue I ran into with the scenario I ran for my face in one shot is that they defaulted to one skill for a large majority of the clues the players were supposed to find. Everything was tied to a manipulation role, which is a social skill. Not all of the characters had a social a social skill that 
would let them engage with it. So I had players who wanted to engage with the mystery and help and find clues. And the the written adventure only provided one avenue for them to do that. So you as a GM have to recognize when like, mm, maybe I need to add in some opportunities for people to use different skills here. I've seen this happen in other adventures. And again, it's having written an adventure, having written other adventures. It's like sometimes you you get stuck on a track and don't always remember to like add in some alternatives. And I think that's really important for published adventures that other people are going to be picking up and running with. Yeah. And I know why some of that stuff happens at times, because if this stuff is printed out, then there's there's word count things. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sit here and like talk about all the all the ways that and all the reasons that these things fall down. One of the primary ones is there's word counting pages. And uh, the other one is that people don't really know how to present adventures in, in meaningful ways. Cause yeah. we're still, I mean, this is still a pretty new hobby. Like as far as like the, the writing medium goes, I mean, people are still trying stuff and figuring stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been figuring it out for 50 years at this point, but I mean, novels have been going on for like 250, 300 <laughs> years. So, I mean, like which, which medium do you think is going to be better? I still think published adventures can be extremely useful to, you know, help give you the the ballpark you're playing in with that game and that setting. As a GM, you need to do more work than just pick it up, read it once and start running it because you're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot if you don't do a little more work to try and figure out how to make it work for your table. Do you know what the most egregious ones are? I think hmm. any the longer ones, anything that's longer in a lot of ways, especially that's trying to really provide a narrative like the giant D&D adventure books mm -hmm. or anything that's like a, a very long structured campaign, the Pathfinder Adventure Paths, which they're actually very good. Uh, I am not a fan of the Pathfinder role playing game, but the Adventure Paths have always been, for the most part, in my opinion, pretty, pretty high quality uh, narratives that are strung through. And they do a great job of breaking them up into six parts. Once again, like the longer these things get, the harder it is to to help them stand on, on their own with their narrative weight. Like they get right. muddled because how do you hook them in? And I think that they should take more time in the first chapters of these larger campaigns to help tie the characters in. Like, look, these are the best backgrounds and, and best ideas to like build a character around so that they can fit inside of these games. I mean, we're not mm -hmm. telling you what to do, but here are some great suggestions so you can feel like you're a part of the adventure. I mean, this is, this is what I do with all of my homebrew campaigns. Uh, I figure out what the campaign is going to be in general, based on what my players are interested in, based on what I'm interested in running. And then I set the boundaries for which they can create their characters. I mean, and this is from, like I said earlier, having years of been playing, I've seen things not work. And so like, okay, let's, let's try this. So for example, with my first Eberron campaign, I said, you can play anyone from anywhere but you have to have willingly served in this mercenary company, which was working with Brayland during the last war. And that'll give you a nice hook into the rest of the campaign. Right there. It's like, doesn't matter anything else you want to play. Fair game. Go for it. You just have to work with these two points. Yeah, And that's a super loose frame for that, too. And like, that's 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 hardly even giving a frame, right? Yeah, and it's it's great. Don't get me wrong. If you're looking to play a game where your characters really mean something to the ongoing narrative of a pre-written ca campaign, you need more than that. Yeah. I mean, eventually you figure it out because like stuff arises out of play and whatnot, but it could feel real weird. I'll fully admit that I don't like 
organized play, Adventurers League or the Shadowrun missions, because I don't like my characters being that disconnected from the narrative of the adventure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there is no reason for my character to be there other than, hey, you've got this job, go do it. I know that's enough for a lot of people. It's not enough for me. I'm even getting worse these days. Like I have, I have gone to a whole another level of this in my gaming, which people will call me a, I don't know, a terrible gamer or like too hoity-toity or whatnot. Like I want my characters to have real character development and arcs throughout play. I, I don't want to like fight with the other PCs, like in a, in a mechanical way, but I want to have dramatic encounters where like there can potentially be some conflict that helps push my character's flaws and needs and wants and internal conflicts to the surface so that they can actually come out and play out in meaningful ways at the table. Yeah. I'm not looking for bleed. That's not what I'm looking for, but I am looking for real storytelling. Like, and right. I, I shouldn't say it like that. Real story, all storytelling, even in role-playing games is real storytelling. I'm looking for deeper, more literary styled storytelling, even, even pulp stuff. Like I love the Dresden files. Yeah. Harry Dresden is a fairly complicated character. Not, maybe not in the first book, but as soon as you get into like <laughs> books four or five and six and whatnot, then yes, he is a much more complicated character and stuff that happens in the first couple of books really lean into what happens to him later. This is a totally different subject, but I'm going to bring it up anyway for a second. People have a hard time bringing characters to the table that feel like they're, they have, they can have meaningful arcs and games because mm -hmm. of these, these reasons, because of what you're saying, especially republished campaigns. That's why sessions of zeros are so important. This is a whole other topic we could get into and how players will often create characters whose best story moments are in their past. Yes, and that's bad. Don't do that thing. You want your you want your character to have their cool, awesome, defining moments in the narrative of the play that you're going to be going into, not have it all be in your backstory that now you just get to be mysterious and dark about with the other players at the table cuz you don't want to reveal your dark backstory. It's been said before, if it doesn't come out at the table, it doesn't matter. It's true. And there's a whole like series of techniques that you can use to do that. Uh, let yeah. me bring this back around to publish adventures real quick before we get really off on the, on the side. <laughs> before we go down this this path. I could like, I, it's like the thing that's at the forefront of my mind all the time these days for, for tabletop role-playing games. But um, I'm running the published adventure out of the Spelljammer book called mm -hmm. The Light of Zarius. I've read the whole thing. I think Dan Dillon and Chris Perkins are very good adventure designers. I think this adventure gets the tone right for the game. They straight up say, this is inspired by that Flash Gordon movie. That Flash Gordon movie is bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch of nonsensical encounters that string together in ways that don't mean anything. This adventure is better than that. It, it gets the tone of Spelljammer right. It is a tour of like the Spelljammer setting in a lot of ways. Which is what you want for an adventure in a book set like the Spelljammer one. Absolutely. Here's the big problem with it. It assumes that the characters are from a planet and that planet will be threatened right at the very first session. And it gives you no reason. It tells you, it gives you no way and no reasoning and no methodology for making the characters care about the planet they are getting thrown off of. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's fun adventures in space, right? But even Flash Gordon and uh, I forget the other character, the, the female character's name and the doctor, the doctor's name. I'm real bad with names. Flash's love interest was Dale. I feel so bad for Dale when you go back and watch that movie. Although she does have really one really awesome moment where she's like this weird kickflip thing to grab a uh, grab a laser gun and shoot somebody. It's really funny. <laughs> I'm like, where did that come from? Out of nowhere. Thank you, Pulp Adventure. Anyways, they lived on Earth for a long time. So me as a viewer of a story can be like, 
yeah, sure. Flash cares about the planet Earth because he lives there, right? His stuff's there. <laughs> I mean, I could say the same thing about the characters, but I think that movie's terrible. Like <laughs> that movie's bad. <laughs> I love moments in that movie, but that movie is awful. That movie is a treasure just for the soundtrack alone. Well, I mean, the only thing that's good about that movie is the soundtrack. If Queen didn't do the soundtrack, that movie would be total trash. <laughs> and it was made in the same era as Star Wars, okay? You could do better. Yes, yes. This thing has a series of encounters that are connected and have some sort of narrative like through line. But man, there are random events that happen that push the story forward, just like in Flash Gordon, that I'm like, all right, sure. So I didn't start it at level five. We decided to start at level three and play out two levels of adventures on the planet so they could actually care about the planet. Mm -hmm. I gave them the option. We could have started at level five and let them do, do flashback scenes to back at the planet as like interludes. But they chose they didn't overwhelmingly choose that way, but it was more that way than to go back to level three than the flashback methodology. Because I, I, I get what they might have been trying to do with setting up the adventure that way. But the players know they're making characters for a Spelljammer campaign. They're not necessarily giving themselves deep roots into the setting that they're starting in, they're more excited about the setting they're going to. Mm -hmm. So that's why I had to have that conversation with them to tell them, like, what do you want to do? Because you need to care about this planet. How are we going to make you care about this planet? And I've had the exact opposite happen. It was in a Seven Seas campaign where we all made characters based on the, the European settings that are in the main book. And then the GM started the campaign by shipwrecking us in the equivalent of the Caribbean, which meant all of our plot hooks for our backgrounds and the, where our character started meant nothing because we were never going to get back there to engage with them. You have to find that balance between getting your players hooked on the settings and then giving them the chance to explore them. I, I agree. I, uh, I That's really all I have to say, right? Like, I, I think especially because it's like 32 minutes and I don't want to get thrown in the stew pot. <laughs> don't throw me in the stew pot, Ange. My clone will not be as nice as me. <laughs> no, no, probably not. No, I think we've said a lot about published adventures. There's always a lot more to say. We could probably go on for another hour, but we probably shouldn't. Probably not. <laughs> Just as a final word from me, they are a great tool to provide you the ballpark to play in, to get the right tone for the game, uh, to let you know how to, you know, how the, in, the designers intend the game to work. But they need more work than just reading through it once. You need to figure out how to actually make it work for your table. Put the effort in. Any la other last words from you, Chris? You have to read these with a bit of a critical eye uh, if you want to get the most out of them, because they will fall down at points because these these adventure designers even at the highest levels of the tabletop role-playing game industry are still fallible and make mistakes and don't provide the best possible content for us to like make this easy to use at the table. And I mean, they're trying and there's some great stuff out there. There is absolutely. This isn't gospel stuff right here, right? Like to, uh, to use the religious stuff uh, as it's probably not the best term to use, but like that is a saying that, that, you know, I've grew up with, like it is not precious. I'm going to add one second last note. If you change things, your players are never going to know. Yeah, that too. I probably should have brought that up a little more previously. Unless you tell them. I mean, you can tell them afterwards, but change things. Make it work for your group. They're never going to know and they're never going to care because they're engaging with what you're presenting at the table. I never understood. I mean, another aside, I never understood why players get so upset when they do find out that you change something on them. I don't know. I don't know. Because these things are not 
precious, right? Like you think that they're balanced and whatnot, but they're not really that balanced. Like this is, this is the, the whole point of this isn't to overcome challenges. I got about 27,000 adventure board games. I can give you that feel like role-playing <laughs> games. If you really want like actual challenge. I mean, not to mention the actual, like for at least my group, I always have to increase the challenge of the encounter to make it actually challenging for them because they're always the encounters that I have gotten in published adventures are always so easy for my players to just walk all over, even if they're appropriate, the appropriate level. That's a whole nother episode. The reason that balanced encounters don't matter should be an episode because <laughs> there's so much variation on the rest of it. Like, what is the tactical skill level of your of your game master? Uh -huh. What are the what is the tactical skill level of your players? What is the party composition of your players? And is it, is it working at the highest possible level? There's a vast difference between my regular Saturday group and my niece and her friends that I run the teen D&D game for. Mm -hmm. Vast difference between what I can present to them and have the encounter be fun and challenging. There's some power level weirdness too with D&D. Let's just talk about D&D for a second. Oh, we're going to aside. Oh, maybe I'll just cut this out and make a bonus content for the Patreon. <laughs> For D&D, there's a weird power skew because there are power bumps at third level and fifth level for low level characters. But if you multi-class, you don't get those power bumps. Nope. So not all fifth level characters are designed equal and not all third level characters are designed equal. Plus, there are some multi-class combinations that hit certain levels that skew the power bump the other way. Balance as far as like level to CR and stuff, like it's a guideline, but it's not balance at all. No. Those three things right there, tactical skill level of game masters and players, party composition and like character build, those variables are so vast right there that it throws encounter balance all over the place. Yep. Okay, I'm done. This show is funded by the Gnomes 2 Patreon. You too can be a Patreon bagger by following the Patreon link on the Gnomes 2 website to the Gnomes 2 Patreon. This ad is brought to you by Dun Journey. Heard about the breakthrough AI art created by Mid Journey? Oh, we're well, about to get yelled to at. It's, oh man, and you brought up you brought up AI art. We're in so much trouble. The internet's gonna yell at us. Oh God! Screw them! It's a tool you can. Uh, anyway, use Dun Journey. Dun Journey is the GM's best friend. Throw in some prompts, and you'll get an AI generated plot for your game. It'll look pretty from afar, but don't look too closely at the eyes. If you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other misdirected Mark shows. Here's another one to check out. Man, I love me some bone, stone, and obsidian. Jesse and Robert take monthly deep dives into the Dark Sun setting and discuss it across all editions of Dungeons & Dragons. You can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, at GnomeStew on Twitter, and GnomeStew on Facebook. Chris, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to today? I'd like to shout out Brandon Sanderson in his lecture series when he's teaching over at BYU. If you ever wanted to hear a master writer talk about writing science fiction and fantasy, I think it's a great series, especially if you're interested in the craft of writing. Even if you're not and just want to see how writers put together books. Wasn't that a great shout out, Ange? That's an awesome shout out. What about you? I'm going to give a shout out to Seth Skorkowski. He is a YouTuber and he will do breakdowns of adventures for usually Traveler, Cthulhu and very old school D&D adventures. And the nice thing I like is he will talk about a lot of these things we discussed today and he'll give you ideas on ways to make your character, your players care about the adventure and actually engage with it. They're fantastic. I highly recommend them. Not to mention his other videos on just general RPG thoughts and philosophies are fantastic. Do you think this episode is good enough to keep you out of the stew? Uh, I hope so. I'm, I don't know why you keep rolling that pot closer. Why put, put the cleaver down, Ash. Put the cleaver down. Okay. Ah!